today and read some of Byung-Chul Han's The Disappearance of Rituals. So Byung-Chul Han is a contemporary philosopher that I would recommend to any of my students in my intro to philosophy class because he's quite accessible and he will mention and quote from various philosophers that are very important. For instance, um, a lot of times he references Nietzsche and Hegel, Heidegger, um, I think Kant sometimes, so, and then some of the maybe philosophers that we won't be talking about in our um, class, but, you know, any philosopher is great to read. So, um, so he uh, was born in 1959 in South Korea, but moved of during his late teenage years, I think, to Germany, and he's been there ever since, and he teaches at a university in Berlin. I think um, occasionally, maybe now, I'm not sure if he does that full-time, um, but he's written quite a few books, so I've read maybe about, I don't know, um, five of them, just looking at my um, bookcase, so I started reading him this year, actually. And um, also, it's, he's pretty accessible because each of his books are only about 80 or 90 pages, so it's kind of like a treatise or a long essay. Um, and he talks about contemporary culture. He's been writing for quite a long time, so I'm trying myself to kind of grasp the evolution of his thought because in my opinion, it seems like he was more... In his early writings, he was more traditionally... I would say progressive or liberal um, in his ideas and I think his more recent writings at least that I've read are a bit more provocative and interesting because uh, he almost has a platonic kind of I don't know shockingly conservative understanding like he goes back to trying to uh, see the traditions and critique culture in I think a more interesting way um, so so yeah so I will be doing obviously I'm not gonna go through this entire work today um, maybe just a chapter we'll see how far we get but if you do want to pick this book up and kind of read along with me that would be great. So I've already read this, but I'm going to do, that's why I think it would be good for a read-along. I'll give you my thoughts as I have them. And um, yeah, just maybe sit back and enjoy some philosophy. So the first chapter is called The Compulsion of Production. And just to kind of give you an overview of rituals, because um, that might help us kind of situate ourselves before we get into the text. Um, so the disappearance of rituals, you can kind of think about what rituals do we have in our lives. You can think of, you know, just mundane everyday rituals that you have. Um, if you, well, can we call, can we call um, sort of habits? rituals. I think we can. Um, I'm not sure if they always have to be imbued with the sacred or divineness or be a part of our awareness, but I'll get into that in a second. Um, I mean, you might think of if you brush your teeth every morning or you have like a morning routine, like you wake up, you open the blinds, um, you 
I don't know, I do, refill your humidifier, um, brush your teeth, wash your face, get your first cup of tea or coffee, and sit down and just enjoy the morning or read something. Uh, you know, that might be called a ritual. It's something that we look forward to or we engage ourselves in every day and we can depend on it. And, you know, it's, it's something that we do by ourselves, but um, it's kind of a ritual. Um, so I don't think he's really talking about those kind of rituals though, although I think that they are helpful and if we intentionally craft them, they can be a part of our sort of strategy of well-being. Um, but he's really talking more about like cultural rituals. And I think he thinks there's, there's a lack and many people would probably agree because if you think about, for instance, in the States, our holidays, um, I think that for some of us, holidays have become increasingly less meaningful to the point where we might not even enjoy practicing them or decide to practice them. You can think of holidays like Christmas or Thanksgiving, often these are, you know, the only rituals that we or whatever, you know, culture or country you're in, whatever, you know, um, sort of memorial days that you have where people get together or people wear costumes, etc. But just talking about the states, um, you know, getting together and doing the potluck or you're making th the same kind of foods and you have a ritual of, you know, on Christmas, dirty Santa or secret Santa, or, you know, you always go outside and, I don't know, Christmas carol or something like that. Um, but we don't have very many and often, you know, different challenges come our way. Maybe we don't get along with our family or maybe we've moved away. And, uh, and even if we do celebrate those, most of our year is, is very lacking in rituals and very different from um, maybe people in other cultures outside of the United States or people, you know, in the past who, you know, had sort of sacred gatherings where people would have certain roles and cert certain activities, and this would imbue the culture with a certain sense of order and certainty and predictability, and also allow for performance and play and uh, sort of expression and experimentation and different levels of power. And you can, and so one of the critiques of modern, uh, you know, Western culture, and I'm gonna be talking mainly about the perspective of merit of the United States. Um, what, okay, so one of the critiques of our society is that um, it is, we are increasingly individualistic and isolated, and that was very much <laughs> emphasized in the pandemic, right? When we had to be isolated, and now some of us might have a hard time getting out of the pandemic, and so feel anxiety and a lack of social connection because of that. Um, but, but being able to have rituals imbues culture, you can imagine how it would strengthen the well-being of the members of that culture because you would have a place, a belongingness, 
Um, there would be something that you would look forward to and often rituals um, are elaborate and sensual kinds of activities or situations with music and decoration and there's certain symbolic kind of material items that are associated with that and um and yeah and so basically he's talking about the well he's making the argument that those kind of situations have disappeared for most people and um, the consequences to that. So hopefully that was somewhat kind of an off-the-cuff explanation. Um, It's been a few months since I've read this. All right, let's go ahead and get started. Rituals are symbolic acts. They represent and pass on the values and orders on which a community is based. They bring forth a community without communication. Today, however, communication without community prevails. That's interesting. I wonder why he would say that rituals are without communication. Maybe because if you think about rituals, um, they're kind of... We have templates for them, but even more, we have expectations that will be fulfilled. And so, and maybe there is sort of a, a script that's, that's you know, written or unwritten that um, people participate in or are involved in. And so maybe the communication that's lacking is spontaneous casual communication because a ritual would be a a communal cultural ritual would be something that would be kind of elevated so in a sense that kind of even makes me want to take back the idea that Byung Chul Han would include or the assumption that he would include sort of how holidays are done today because when we all get together and you know on like let's say Christmas holiday or whatever religious holiday we're we're coming to a lot of times that is just that has spontaneous um communication so maybe Byung Chul Han Byung Chul Han has um a more narrow understanding he has a like a higher standard or um a more narrow understanding of ritual rituals are constituted by symbolic perception Symbol originally referred to the sign of recognition between guest friends. One guest friend broke a clay tablet in two, kept one half for himself, and gave the other half to another as a sign of guest friendship. Thus, a symbol serves the purpose of recognition. This recognition is a particular form of repetition. Okay, so that, that's an example of um, a ritual that doesn't have communication. And of course, semantics, right? We can think about communing, communicating with each other without words. So, um, yeah, so then that begs the question, how does Byung Chul Han, how is he thinking in this situation about communication, what it entails and what it doesn't entail? A lot of philosophy is trying to define our terms, so we can't really take everything for granted. 
But what is, so here is a quote. But what is recognition? It is surely not a question of seeing something for the second time, nor does it imply a whole series of encounters. Recognition means knowing something as that with which we are already acquainted. The unique process by which man makes himself at home in the world, to use a Hegelian phrase, so there's one philosopher, right? Hegel is constituted by the fact that every act of recognition of something has already been liberated from our first contingent apprehension of it and is then raised into ideality. This is something that we are all familiar with. Recognition always implies that we have come to know something more authentically than we were able to do when caught up in our first encounter with it. Recognition elicits the permanent from the transient. Okay, so what might he mean about it's liberated from our first contingent apprehension of it? Since he says that we are able to be more authentic beyond our first encounter, you can kind of think about any sort of first encounter and the apprehension that might come along with it, right? Because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know, like, let's say you are going to meet a group of friends for the first time. Um, there's going to be lots of new people that you've never met. You're just maybe going to a restaurant or a coffee shop and you are planning to repeat this ritual maybe every Saturday afternoon. Well, the first time that you go, maybe the, the coffee shop or the restaurant is new. So you don't know what to expect. You don't know how you will be oriented in that restaurant or coffee shop. Um, what place, the places to sit, your level of comfort, where you'll be most comfortable. Maybe if there's a couch, you'll sit on the couch. If there's not a couch, you know, what order is everyone going to sit at on the table? What are you going to order? What are the choices? Um, what is going to be your role? How will you fit in with this new group of friends? Right, so there's some apprehension, but if you can think about, okay, so the eighth or ninth or 10th time that this happens, there are certain sort of certainties and things that you can expect. And so you can start to open your eyes and see, because a lot of times when something is new and we're anxious about, um, a situation, we're often preoccupied in our own minds, we're very self-conscious, we're self-conscious about the gaze upon us, how we're seen, and there's a lot of different emotions, and so we might not be able to see, like let's say the decorations of the restaurant, or really examine people's faces, but when you've done something so many times, you don't have to pay attention to what you paid attention to in the very beginning. Um, Sorry, I'm always just checking to see whether it's still recording technology. Um, you can be free, you are liberated to notice different things and every time you can kind of learn something new, right? It's kind of like when we are reading a book, rereading it. The first time we're reading a book, we're trying to grasp the entire message. We're trying to understand, you know, uh, the sentences, the relationship between the sentences. But the second time we read it, we can go slowly. We've already, hopefully, probably annotated, right? Highlighting, writing in the margins, defining words. 
Um, so we can go slowly, we can think about it, we can contemplate, we can reflect. So that's what I think he means about we're liberated from our first contingent apprehension of it and that we can come to know something more authentically um, when we have revisited it, when it's in repetition. So the last sentence, recognition elicits the permanent from the transient. So everything that we do as human beings is is temporal. Um, but if you think about what a sense of permanence is, um, it's something that uh, repeats itself, it's continuous, that seems for a particular time somewhat eternal. All right, so moving on from the quote. And if you're following along, we're on page two. Symbolic perception as recognition is a perception of the permanent. The world is shorn of its contingency and acquires durability. So contingent, you can think about when something is, what that means, when something is contingent on something else, um, sort of conditional, I think. I don't know, I might have to look that word up, but that's what I think of. Um, okay, today the world is symbol poor. Data and information do not possess symbolic force, and so do not allow for recognition. And when I think of recognition, I think of like an intimate knowing. So when you're just browsing on the internet, um, depending on whether you dwell at a site, um, there might be a lack of recognition or intimate knowing. It's just a piece of information, you're gonna move on, you're gonna forget about it. Those, okay, hold on. Those images and metaphors which found meaning and community and stabilize life, and this is what Byung Chulhan is um, feeling is important because I think he feels, in his later works at least, that we are kind of lost, we're isolated, we're rushing, and we have lost a sense of time and groundedness um, that certain traditions of the past allowed communities. Are lost in some, okay, so I'll just read that sentence again. Those images and metaphors which found meaning and community and stabilize life are lost in symbolic emptiness. The experience of duration diminishes, so there we have time, and contingency dramatically proliferates. I feel like it's important to look up the word contingency for myself, so excuse me while I look it up so I can tell all of us what it means. Contingent. Okay, here we go. Um, subject to chance, occurring or existing only if certain circumstances are the case, dependent on. Okay, so contingency is a part of our current ritualless life. So everything is by chance. And if you can think about, so why does the experience of duration diminish? Well, you can think about how when you're browsing the internet or you're on TikTok or whatever it is, you lose a sense of time. Like you start 
you know, have your laptop, you're sitting wherever, and you're browsing, and before you know it, it's dinner time, or it's time to go to bed, or you should have gone to bed two hours ago, right? So there's not, but rituals happen on a certain day or week or month, according to maybe something in nature, um, and start at a certain time and end at a certain time. They're, you know, either an hour or a day or however long it is. Um, just like if you are meeting with your friends every Saturday afternoon to discuss a book that you're reading, um, you know, more or less, you get there at a certain time and you leave at a certain time, give or take. Um, okay. And contingency dramatically proliferates. So thinking about predictability. We can define rituals as symbolic techniques of making oneself at home in the world. So this is another one of his critiques. Uh, he says that we, uh, today, since we're rushing, we're on the internet, um, we're using technology, we're depending, we're kind of enslaved to work and productivity and rushing to do the things that we need to do in the day before the next work day starts. Um, he says that we kind of lose our feeling of belongingness even as human beings on earth. Um, and I think it has to do also with the sort of dis, um, dissatisfied nature. If you feel dissatisfied or something is just not working in the world, that the entire you know world or economy is not working and you're frustrated, um, you're trying to lock yourself into, or you're, you have a desire to lock yourself into a more comfortable place where you'll feel grounded and can rest and breathe. Um, so I think all of that, we have to think about what does it mean to really feel at home? At home in the world. In what ways do you and in what ways don't you feel at home in the world and why? And could rituals solve that? Um, they transform being in the world into a being at home. So that's rituals, the benefit of rituals. They turn the world into a reliable place. They are to time what a home is to space. They render time habitable. Habitable? They even make it accessible like a house. They structure time, furnish it. In his novel, Citadel, Antoine de this is a French name. I'm studying French, but how do we say Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, maybe? I don't know. That's probably wrong. Describes rituals as temporal techniques of making oneself at home in the world. So we have to do something. There are techniques that are involved in order to, to help us feel more at home in the world. And our immemorial rites are in time what the dwelling is in space. For it is well that the years should not seem to wear us away and disperse us like a handful of sand. Rather, they should fulfill us 
It is meet that time. Sorry, the, the word choice in this next sentence. It is meet that time should be a building up. Does meet, M-E-E-T. Does that, why am I not understanding that sentence? Um, hold on, let me see. And is there another definition of meet? Am I just not thinking about it? It is meet that time should be a building up. I mean, if there was the word important, it is important that time should be a building up. That would make sense to me. Okay. I'm trying to find... going to figure this out. I just can't move on without understanding it. Okay, so meet as an adjective. Okay, here we go. I just love when things make sense and I don't feel crazy. Okay, so meet as an adjective, M-E-E-T, precisely adapted to a particular situation, need, or circumstance, very proper. That's what M-E-E-T can mean as an adjective precisely adapted to a particular situation, need, or circumstance. So it is very proper that time should be a building up. All right. I don't know why. I, I didn't know that. I don't know why I feel embarrassed. Am I getting right? Like, <laughs> like it's okay to look up words, but <clears throat> I think I was just so confused. I'm highly moved by being confused, I guess. All right. <clears throat> Hopefully my eyes don't start watering because when they start watering, they burn. And we're gonna have to pause. Okay. Oh. I might have to pause. I have to rinse my eyes. I'm sorry. I'll be right back. Okay, we're back. <laughs> That happened my first semester of teaching at the institution where I teach, and my sweet students were all, and now I think I have mascara in my hair, but all of my students were trying to help me figure out why my eyes burn when they water. <laughs> Sometimes it'll just be random. I don't have to be overcome with emotion like I was just now. Um, I don't know. I live in Colorado, and I think that Colorado just messes with your eyes, and I think it's like horrible dry eyes. Okay, so let's, let's continue on. Thus I go on, thus I go from one feast day to another, from anniversary to anniversary, from harvest tide to harvest tide, as when a child, I made my way from the hall of council to the restroom within my father's palace, where every footstep had a meaning. And... Okay, and the next sentence is, today time lacks a solid structure. So, you know, does every footstep, that, that doesn't happen today, not in the modern world, in the modern Western world, not in the States. Every footstep doesn't necessarily have a meaning. Now, if you follow, let's say, 
the Buddhist monks and try to be mindful with everything that you do. I mean, that that is a that's a possibility. That's a solution. But again, I think that would be um, sort of a ritual um, because it's within a context. It's within I don't know. Young Chulpan might not agree, but um, I think that it, in the continuum of rituals, you know, if rituals can be on a continuum, that would be at least something more ritualized. But, you know, most of the time we are just, you know, thinking about our next step. You know, if you're in class, maybe you're thinking about what you're going to have for lunch or what you're going to do. When you, or if you're at work, you're thinking about what you're going to do in your free time. Um, you maybe you're rushing to work or school in the morning because you're going to be late or, or you are rushing to get all your homework done before, you know, you really have to go to sleep so that you will be alive and not a zombie the next day. You know, good luck if you have an 8 a.m. class or even a 930 class. That, that can be hard still. It's hard for me, so I know. Um, so, I mean, that's such a beautiful idea. And this isn't all the time, though, right? You know, I was saying that this mascara in my eye is going to distract me, but oh well. You know, <laughs> sometimes we're just a little bit of a mess. It's okay. Um, rituals aren't, like Byung-Chul Hong will say later, that rituals aren't every day. And that's what makes them special, because they're elevated pieces of time. But they are expected and dropped within the continuum of the time like the year or you know our life is divided up when we have rituals and you know I mean you can think about how a sense of order a lot of times in sort of I come from a I mean, my PhD is in religious studies, but I come from a feminist theoretical background because it was juxtaposed with women's studies and I had a lot of feminist theory for some reason um, during my master's program, which I have a master's in uh, creative writing poetry. So I just, I don't know, I, I fell into it <laughs> early on in my graduate um, year or program era. So, um, sorry, I was already thinking about my next sentence <clears throat> or the sentence that I started before. Um, so order and eternalness and structure gets a bad rap in um, feminist theory and what I would call a more sort of leftist or progressive or liberal conversation because every, I mean, there's, there's cycles, right? That history goes through, that theoretical conversation goes through. When something has been you know, reified and come into an idol that is, that is, you know, always practiced and taken for granted, then you'll have a reactionary stage of theory that says, hey, no, we're, you know, we need to swing the pendulum back to the other side. So I feel like for a lot of my graduate degree, there were people, let's say like Carol Christ, um, a really well-known feminist theologian, one of her books is entitled She Who Changes. So trying to take God away from the Christian God or the God of the book, from this idea of uh, omnipotence and omnipresence and um, looking at nature and seeing how nature kind of changes and flows and evolves and uh, decays and resurrects and so as I'm saying that I'm thinking about Christian theology and like the resurrection of Christ but, but 
it's fine. Let's shelve it. Um, but she's trying, so she's trying to say, no, what is really sacred isn't order because order um, restricts us and imprisons us and keeps, you know, us from realizing our potential. Really what is sacred is change and movement and that's how we should see God. So it was really like um, revelatory. And and now that's what I said that that's why I said that Byung Chul Han, at least in his later works. I don't know, I need to read all of his works to really see the progression. And if that's true, um, that he does evolve that way. But that's why he is provocatively to me conservative. Because it's like he's going back and he's seeing something really empowering in the past. Um, or the, the the particular past that is um considered I guess on the right or conservative how I'm I don't know if I would use right and if everyone would use right and left how I'm using them but I think I'm using them in like the colloquial kind of current political terms okay so sorry my eyes are still weird but fine <laughs> we're good all right today time lacks a solid structure it is not a house but, oh, and now, no, I was wrong. I'm gonna have to pause again. Okay, we're back. We're gonna get through this. Sorry, eye drops here in my eye. As you can tell, I'm slightly neurotic. I have no idea how I got through, let's say, an hour and 15 minute class period, like not at home. I haven't taught on campus since the pandemic, and I will this fall, I think. Uh, depending on schedules, are never like really solid until closer to August, and it is now June. Um, I don't know how I'm gonna do that. <laughs> okay, that's fine. My my students, if you are one of my students, you. And you've had my class, you you know me. So let's let's try to get through this. Alright. Today time lacks a solid structure. It is not a house, but an erratic stream. It disintegrates into a mere sequence of point-like presences. It rushes off. So a mere sequence of point-like presences. So even if there's repetition. I think he would say, and he's saying here, um, in our daily life, so this goes back to my question about, you know, morning rituals and is brushing your teeth if you do it every morning a ritual. I guess he would say it depends on not the what, but the how. Maybe we can say that. Um, but even though there are repetitions, so you brush your teeth every morning, um, which kind of seems contradictory, but you would have to think how could brushing your teeth be like a meaningful ritual rather than just something you have to get through. Um, and the same thing going to work, if your drive is just going from point A to point B, there you go, you have your points. And so they're not meaningful divisions of time. Um, sorry, and I also took the mascara out of my hair, so just look a little ragged, it's fine. Okay, um, there is nothing to provide time with any hold. Time that rushes off is not habitable. I was gonna say it like that. Rituals stabilize life. 
To paraphrase Antoine Saint-Exupéry, maybe, we may say, that name again, rituals are in life what things are in space. For Hannah Arendt, it is the durability of things that gives them their relative independence from men. So another philosopher that you could follow, Hannah Arendt. They have the function of stabilizing human life. Their objectivity lies in the fact that men, their ever-changing nature notwithstanding, can retrieve their sameness, that is, their identity, by being related to the same chair and the same table. End quote. In life, things serve as stabilizing resting points. Rituals serve the same purpose. Through their self-sameness, their repetitiveness, they stabilize life. So, you know, we'd have to think about what are the benefits of stabilizing life and what does an unstable life or an unstable life look like? They make life last. He also has something um, about, he has another book called The Scent of Time, and I think he talks about death and dying in that one. I'm not sure if he does in this one. But he says that having sort of order to our life and feeling at home and having this duration um, makes death more meaningful and an event um, where he sees that dying now is kind of robbed of its meaning um, in the sense that it it means that your life ends randomly and not at the time that it should. Although when I was reading that, I was thinking, you know, then that that begs the question, what kind of control is he? Or maybe he's not looking for control because regardless of what we, our mindset, you know, we will die at an unpredictable point or, or could die at an unpredictable point or a random point in our life, Um, but I guess it doesn't feel random, but you're not really feeling anything after death, so, so I don't know, I just had some issue with that, but that's another one of his that kind of goes into this conversation, which again, I feel like his earlier works, like, do not coalesce and do not fit in with his ideas and his themes. Sometimes he's, I feel like he's completely contradicting, like his early, his younger writings are contradicting his older writings, which is, is natural that um, a philosopher will evolve. It's just so interesting to see it in like a living philosopher because we don't have all of his works yet. Okay, um, let's see. The contemporary compulsion to produce, so here's his critique on capitalism perhaps, robs things of their endurance. So the contemporary compulsion to produce robs things of their endurance. It intentionally erodes duration in order to increase production to force more consumption. So, okay, so it robs things of their endurance. So I think that there was a critique of Apple iPhones, there was this suspicion, or maybe it was confirmed, that um, Apple was creating its batteries and its iPhones, or maybe even also computers, to give out more quickly. So you'd either have to renovate your computer, iPhone, or get new tech. 
And you think about, you know, fast fashion, um, you're not really having like one winter coat that you love and you're gonna wear, you know, season after season, maybe, maybe some minimalists do, right? Uh, quality over quantity. But sometimes you go shopping for, I did this in graduate school whenever I was bored, it was an activity, a fun thing to just go shopping and pick something up. And, uh, you know, it might not necessarily last in my closet forever. Especially fast when you think about fast fashion, um, it's so inexpensive as well that you don't feel bad about throwing it out. You know, we don't mend our socks anymore. Most of us don't. So there's not a sense of, if there's a sense of duration, it's uh, short-lived. So it robs things of their endurance. Lingering, however, presupposes that things endure. And when he critiques technology and our technological use, he talks about how we don't linger on a site um, that, well, I guess, you know, if you think about binge watching Netflix, that's kind of lingering, but it's also kind of a mindless, can be a mindless uh, experience. So it's not really, I think he means something very specific by lingering. Um, lingering, however, presupposes things that endure. If things are merely used up and consumed, there can be no lingering. And the same compulsion of production destabilizes life by undermining what is enduring in life. So you can ask yourself, what in my world has, an, has a quality of endurance? What endures in my world and what seems like it is um, transient. And the same compulsion of production destabilize it. Oh, did I just read that? Yeah, okay. Thus, despite the fact that life, going on to page four, expectancy is increasing, production is destroying life's endurance. So, see, I feel like current Byung Chul Han is, uh, is a little bit Marxist. A smartphone is not a thing in a rent's sense. It lacks the very sameness that stabilizes life. It is also not a particularly enduring object. It differs from a thing like a table which confronts me in its self-sameness. Thinking about you know, certain kinds of tables that, are, that have weight and that have space, they are difficult to move. I am figuring this out. I have a very heavy bookcase and I'm thinking about moving next year out of my apartment, hopefully into a rented house. Hopefully that exists um, for me. How am I going, like this bookcase that I have over here, off in the distance, off the side, you can't see it. Um, it, it feels, I feel like it doesn't want to move. <laughs> so <laughs> I can't move it. Um, so it is, so if you think about you know, his example of a table. I don't think he's talking about like a light coffee table. Or maybe he is. I just think it works better if the table has weight and space. Substantial weight and space. The content displayed on a smartphone which demands our constant attention is anything but self-shame. No, self-same. Sorry, I was like, 
doesn't make sense, which demands our constant attention is anything but self-same. The quick succession of bits of content displayed on a smartphone makes any lingering impossible. The restlessness inherent in the apparatus makes it a non-thing. So restlessness makes it a non-thing. The, if you think about speed and how our society, you know, so people say that, you know, you can buy a camera today, but it will be maybe obsolete in three years or maybe even sooner, you'll want to buy another one because new things are always coming out. There's always improvements. And so when you speed up so fast and the internet is kind of fast too, right? You can follow different, like if you look at your search history, if I look at my search history, um, there are, you know, a hundred different sites in a day, or at least there used to be before I, trying to stow away tech now and become less addictive. But um, there's you can look at your search history and see how long the list is in a day. How much time did you spend on the internet to go through all those sites? But furthermore, it's not even the time, it's how quickly you, and how much time you spend at each one. So when things speed up so much, they become non-material. Is sort of the metaphor that I think he's thinking of when he says restlessness. So the restlessness inherent in the apparatus makes it a non-thing. The way in which people reach for their smartphones is also compulsive, but things should not compel us in this way. Forms of rituals such as manners make possible both beautiful behavior among humans and a beautiful, gentle treatment of things. I need to read that again. Forms of ritual such as manners make possible both beautiful behavior among humans and a beautiful gentle treatment of things. So you can think about how does, so manners, he would consider that a cultural ritual. So you think about the manners of, you know, holding the door if it is um, a part of a cultural ritual to always always when you come to a door first and there's someone behind you you always open the door and let them proceed first or um you know i mean i don't know what he would think about like gender rituals like heteronormative gender rituals but i mean to be consistent he would have to say there's beauty in that as well you know someone always paying or someone being, um, you know, I don't know, giving flowers to the other person, etc. And there can be new rituals. It doesn't have to be heteronormative. There are rituals in every relational orientation community, right? Um, but those, but those rituals, those roles, are not imprisoning or offensive or something like that. And that this is again why I say he's provocatively conservative. Um, I would call that conservative, like rules and rituals and identities that you're kind of, you play. He feels that that's beautiful because, well, a lot of times manners are polite, right? And politeness could be seen as beautiful. All right, let's continue before we get in trouble. Um, in a ritual context, things are not consumed or used up, 
but used. We are past an hour here. Under, we can keep going. If you're listening on my podcast and not on YouTube, this might be separated into two parts. On YouTube, it's just going to be long. All right. Um, let's see. In a ritual context, things are not consumed or used up, but used. Thus, they can also become old. So you think about in like maybe certain pagan rituals, um, you know, even modern day, there's a certain cloak that you wear only like once a season or once a year, or you have particular tools on your altar that you are always going, that you're, that are going to endure. You're not always like updating or changing it. Or if you are, um, it's in a, it's in the context of a cycle. So they are used. Thus, they can also become old. Under the compulsion of production, by contrast, we behave toward things, even towards the world, as consumers rather than users. In return, they consume us. So, the things you possess can possess you, right? Relentlessness, relentless consumption surrounds us with disappearance. Thus destabilizing life. Ritual practices ensure that we treat not only other people, but other things in beautiful ways. That there is an affinity between us and other people as well as things. So you can often think how we de-beautify when we objectify and when we are sort of non-thinking entities who are rushing around. Uh, you know, when you go to the post office or you go to the coffee shop, do you look the person, if you are the customer, are you looking the person who's working behind the counter in the eye and recognizing their humanity? Is there a ritual of manners? Um, a lot of times I think people are too busy or they've just given up caring about um, human connection. And so, um, you know, I'm guilty of it as well. And so we don't have that. And so that's what Byung Chul Han is like grasping for. That's what he's missing. So another quote. Mass teaches the priests to handle things in beautiful ways. The beautiful holding of the chalice and the host, the slow cleaning of the receptacles, the turning of the book's pages, and the result of the beautiful handling of things, a spirit-lifting gaiety. Today we consume not only things themselves, but also the emotions that are bound up with things. You cannot consume things endlessly, but emotions, you can. Sorry, I got distracted. You cannot consume things endlessly, but emotions, you can. Thus emotions open up a new field of infinite consumption. The emotionalization of commodities and the associated aesthetic, this is the word that's going to trip me up, aestheticization, aestheticization, oh my gosh, sorry, Um, I'm also stressed about how long um, I'm on here, I might have to end soon. Because the chapter is, is quite long. Okay. 
so actually we might um, we might stop there not just because I can't pronounce the word but because um, I think we should pick this up but um, we're, we're gonna look how to pronounce that word really quickly <laughs> Aestheticization. Sometimes I can find a voice. Actually, my app does this, but I don't know if I can use it while I'm using Anchor. Let's see. Let's see if the Oxford Dictionary of English has it, and then we'll know how to say it. It'll roll off the tongue. Please have this form of it. Sorry, I'm taking so long with this. Sometimes I just, if you download the Oxford Dictionary, English Dictionary app, um, a British lady will tell you how to pronounce it. I think I spelled it wrong too. Okay. S the has, it doesn't have aestheticization, it has this. Aestheticize. I don't know, I'm going to practice it for next time, <laughs> all right? All right, okay, so we're going to stop this again. If I'm um, sorry if I had to split this up on Anchor, but YouTube... We're stopping in an hour. So we will start again at page, we're at the top of page five. And I might be lying, I might not practice how to pronounce that word. I might just mess it up again. All right, thank you so much if you watched all of this. And uh, thank you for bearing with me through my neurotic eye issues. Uh, there is an eyelash in my eye, that's why I had to like, put eye drops in. Um, Anyway, if you have comments, leave them down below. If you have another interpretation or personal experiences to add, that is always great. And I will see you next time. Thank you.